uh, pause for just a second and look around. Many of you are sitting in different places than you normally are, and you're trying to throw me off, so i got to see where everybody is. Um, you know, Baptists aren't supposed to move around, so you guys are just messing it all up. But uh, okay, I think I got it now, so here we go. So if you have your Bibles this morning, if you can open to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, towards the very back of your Bible, 1 John chapter 4. And welcome to week 8 of a series that we have been walking through as a faith family, looking at the attributes of God, just focusing on who He is, that we are able to know God because God has made Himself known to us. And the point of this series is not for us to look at things that are sometimes true about God. Um, the point of this series is that we are looking at attributes or perfections that are eternally true about God. These aren't things that God added um, to his character. These are who God has always been. And this morning we come to the love of God. Come to this amazing picture on this day of God's love for us. And just think about love. Love is one of the most written about subjects in all of human history. Poems, songs, plays, movie scripts, novels, even psychological studies um, have all focused on love. And let me just go ahead and just let you know the Bible is no exception. Um, love is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in different dimensions throughout the Word of God. But the Bible offers one truth that um, is not found anywhere else in the world's literature, and that is the Bible gives us a benchmark for love, a divine definition for love. Without such a benchmark, love is left to our own whims and to our own emotional feelings. Because of this, love can change with the circumstances. Love can change with our emotions and our response to things and to people. And here's the thing this morning, brothers and sisters, we need an anchor for love. And sometimes when we think of anchor, we think of going down. But let me just say this. The anchor that we're talking about this morning is not anchoring ourselves to something of the earth. No, we're anchoring ourselves to um, something that stretches to the heavens. Uh, a God who loves us and is over us. Long ago, Augustine of Hippo pointed out that the desire of every human heart is to experience a love that is transcendent, meaning a love that is over us, that is so far above us, um, that is supernatural um, in its essence. We all long for that, want that, desire that. Regrettably, I don't think there's any word in the English language that has been stripped down of its depth and meaning than the word love. Just think about that. In fact, it has become one of the most widely misused words in our language. We aren't even always sure what we mean when we use the word. We use the word love to describe the most exalted things and sometimes even um, some of the basis things. We say we love to travel. We love to eat chocolate or french fries or food. We love food. We love our new car. We love the paint color in our living room. We love our neighbors, not because we know them, but because we're pretty sure they're not serial killers. And that's okay with us, so we're good with that. On an average day, we will declare our love for our family, our favorite foods, our favorite sports teams, and for so many other things, both big and small. So needless to say, in light of all of that, it becomes clear that our culture might not understand the love of God or the fact that God is love. 
and not just our culture, maybe even the church, doesn't understand the love of God or that God is love. It makes me think of the words of, of Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I'm going to show it to you, and I kind of added a few things. So the little parentheses are my kind of what I added, but I think it kind of goes along with God's love that left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God or we reduce his love to manageable terms. We want to get him or we want to get his love where we can use him or we can use it. We want a God or we want a love that we can, um, in some measure, control. So think about what we do in our humanity. We try to use God or we try to use love. And we're going to talk about that in just a, a little bit. But the reality is we cannot and must not desire a God-given love that we can control or manipulate. Instead, we must desire a God-given love that will change our lives forever. It will change us forever. So in light of every Christmas song we've sang this morning and every thought that has been impressed upon our hearts and minds as we have sang them, I'm going to turn to the Word of God now, and I want us to behold the love of God. And I want us to behold, to look intently on a God who is love. So 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to ask if you are able, if you could stand with me as we honor God's Word um, together, we're going to read verses 7 through 10. And it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you, Lord, as we come to this, your word. And Lord, this might not be a text that we normally think about when we think of Christmas, but the truth is, God, the Christmas story is all over it. Because you are love, you sent your son. And your son paid the, the payment for sin that we could never pay. God, I pray today as we unpack this amazing, deep topic of your love, that you would help us, God, just to to understand it, maybe a little more, help us to be moved by it. God, help us to understand your love for us and help us to return that love with loving you. Loving you, following you, depending on you, trusting you. God, just lead us, we pray, into your word by your spirit. A spirit to speak to our hearts, open our eyes to see and respond to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let me just kind of lay it out again. So almost everyone who believes in God believes um, that he is a God of love. Even people who don't necessarily believe in God will say if God does exist, he would definitely be a God of love. Unfortunately, I'm not really sure that people really get it. 
In many of our belief systems, we quickly leap to the wrong conclusion. And what I mean by that is this. Be careful anytime you or someone else says these words. If God is loving, then why? If God is loving, if God is such a God of love, then why? Because what we are doing is we are putting God on the stand as if God needs to give us a reason for why he does what he does. And we are making ourselves God and we are making God the creature. Be careful about doing that. Whenever we project our wishes and our desires upon him, we are entering into very dangerous territory. Many believe that God's love and God's goodness means that they should never have to experience pain or or suffering um, at all. Or people believe that because God is love, everything else that we read about in the Bible can't be true of him because he is love. And here's the thing. As Christians, we believe that God is altogether whole and he is not made up of many parts. God is not one part sovereign, one part just, one part immutable, one part omniscient, one part eternal, and then one part loving. No, God is all of these attributes at all times. To understand a single attribute, we have to understand God's relationship to all of them. Meaning, if God or because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because God is eternal, his love has no end. Because he is infinite, his love has zero or no limits. Because he is holy, his love must be and is pure. Because he is immense, his love is beyond our ability to understand or even exhaust. And because he is just, his love desires and demands that justice is done. And the big news of the Bible, please hear this, we just read this. The big news of the Bible is not that you and I have loved God, but that God has loved us. That's the beauty of the Bible. It's not that we have loved God first. It's that he has first loved us. And the Bible is not just a revelation of of God not just being loving. The Bible is a revelation of God being love. God is love. Doesn't mean that everything is going to turn out sweet and beautiful and happy with no difficulty, but it does mean this. In God's love, He does not give us what we want. In God's love, He gives us what we eternally need. This is the beauty of His love. So let's quickly unpack three heavy truths um, pertaining to the love of God. Let me just say, as I've said every week, if you walk away from here this morning just a little confused about what we talk about, then good. Because we're talking about God, not us. Um, Therefore, if God was small enough to be worshipped, he would not, or small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough for us to worship him. So we want to continue to keep God where he um, is. So the first truth is this. God has defined his love for us. God has defined his love for us. We read in 1 John 4, God is love. In himself, God is love. Through him, love is manifested. By him, love is defined. Yet I love what John does here. John doesn't say God equals love. He says God is love. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discussed the idea of love being a part of who God is. He mentioned that when most people throw around the phrase God is love, they really mean Love is God. 
But he says, for the Christian, God is love means the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. Let me just say this. People who seek God for God will know both God and love. People who seek love as God will know neither. Let me say it again. People who seek God for being God will know both God and will know his love. But people seek, who seek love as a God will know neither. Will come to know neither. I think of the words of Carl Henry who says, Love is not accidental or incidental to God. It is an essential revelation of his divine nature, a fundamental and eternal perfection. But the question becomes, what is love? And love is simply the giving by God of himself to us. He is the source of love, and without him, love would not exist. The love of God as we know it is a giving love, it's a sacrificial love, it's an unconditional love, it's a boundless love. I love what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13, and you can turn there or we have some of the verses on the screen in what we call the love chapter. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in verse 4, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. And then in verses 7 and 8, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends or love never fails. God's love is other and absolutely beyond our ability to even grasp. The problem is we hear those words, love is patient, love is kind, love never fails. And it seems like an illusion to us. It seems like an illusion. That, that's never understood that kind of love, but it's not. It's the way that God loves us. And the way that God enables us by His Spirit to love others, but it starts with God. If we want to know how God loves us, that's it. That's how God loves us. That's what He does for us. His love is absolutely flawless. His love has zero, no selfishness in it, no wickedness, no sin mixed with it. God's love is not ordinary. It is not profane. His, God, his love is sacred. It's majestic. It goes beyond anything that we could ever produce. No shadow of evil ever covers the love of God. His love is in a class all by itself. It transcends our experience. And let me just say this this morning. God's love is based on nothing other than the fact that he is love. Let me say that again because some of you didn't get it. In fact, the way you're looking, most of you didn't get it. God's love is based on nothing except the fact that God is love. And it's the fact that it is based on nothing that makes us secure. Because if God's love was based on something that we could do, let me just tell you something, we would blow it. If God's love was based on anything that we did or had to do, we would blow it completely. And God's love would crumble if that was the case. Do you remember studying in school Atlas, who carried the whole world on his back? There are many Christians who are Atlases, and they are trying to carry the weight of earning and keeping God's love. And it can't be done. It can't be done. I, I think one of the hardest tasks in our Christian lives 
is believing that God loves us in spite of our performance for him. Sometimes we believe that when we're doing everything well, when we're reading our Bible every day, when we're not missing church, oh, how God loves us. But when we stumble in those things, we begin to believe, I don't think God loves me right now. And let me just say this this morning. There is nothing you and I can do that will ever make God love us more than he does in this moment or will ever make God love us less. It's the beautiful thing that we must come to terms with. And let me just say this. God does not love us because we're lovely. God loves us because he is love. He loves us because he is love. So hope or God has, excuse me, God has defined his love for us. Secondly, God has revealed his love for us. God has revealed his love. And there's so many ways I could have gone here, but I want to understand that we see love revealed in God and we see love revealed in the Godhead, meaning we see the love of God revealed in the Trinity. Think about Exodus 34. God comes to, or Moses comes to God and says, show me your glory. And God comes to Moses and, and declares this, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious. Remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago, the mercy and grace of God. Mercy, merciful and gracious. And then he said this, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And sometimes we miss that. The Bible doesn't say that God is slow to love. The Bible says that God is slow to anger. Why? Because God is quick to love. Because he is love. The theme of the entire Bible shows us a God who is loving. Think about the Garden of Eden and God telling Adam, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Surely die. And we're not prepared when Adam and Eve eat the fruit and God says, where are you? We think, here it comes. Here it comes. They're about to get what they deserve. They're dying. And instead, God isn't asking for them so he can kill them. He's asking for them so he can reestablish a relationship with them. And all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see God pouring out his love upon the, the patriarchs. We see him pouring out his love upon Moses, upon Israel, upon the priest and the prophets. God is pouring out continually his love. Then we're told when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And Jesus displays and reveals the love of God. Think about it. Jesus loved his disciples. Jesus loved sinners. What was he called often? The friend of sinners. In fact, Jesus even loved those who wanted to put him to death. We read the words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and we go, man, those are kind of hateful words. No, those were words where Jesus was trying to fight for even their hearts. Even their hearts. He wanted them. He wanted them. We see that clearly in the way he responded to Nicodemus. He wanted them. And in John 13, 1, we read these words. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, loved them to the end. Jesus loved his own to the very end. And that might not hit us where it needs to, but here's the mind-blowing thing. Not only did he love his own to the end, he even loved the one who would betray him to the end. 
How do I know that? Because when Jesus stood before the disciples and said, one of you would be, or is going to betray me, they had no idea who it was. Now, if it was me and I know who would betray me and I would say, one of you is going to betray me, everybody would go, it's Frank. <laughs> the, the way he's treating Frank is definitely Frank, but not Jesus. Jesus even loved Judas to the very end. And, and here's the beautiful thing. Not only does Jesus love them to the end, he loves us to the end. And then we see the Holy Spirit. In Romans 5, it says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God has revealed his love to us through the Holy Spirit. Do we really understand what happens the moment we come to Christ? When we realize that Christ died in our place for our sins, when we truly realize that, we repent. That means we have a change of heart. We have a change of mind. We recognize what is true about us what we are deserving of, and we turn away from trusting ourselves, we turn away from our sin, and we turn to Jesus, trusting Him as Savior and Lord. And the moment we do that, the Spirit of God enters our lives to live in us. We're told in Scripture that we're convicted by the Spirit of God, we're filled by the Spirit, we're sealed by the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit. And the Spirit, who always attends the Word of God, uses the Word of God to pour His love into our lives. You know what? This is our daily bread. Every day, God will use this by His Spirit to show us and reveal to us just how much He loves us. There are so many days in my life where I, if, if I did not open up this word, I would have been convinced by the enemy that God did not love me or others. And yet, as I open this word, God pours out his love upon me and upon the world. And I say, those voices cannot be true because God, your word says this. Oh, how God uses his word. And just think about this. God, Bible says he'll discipline us to show us that he loves us. And we don't like to talk about that, but read Hebrews 12 and just meditate upon that. But here's the point. God deeply wants us to know that we are loved. God deeply wants us to know that. And the problem is, most of us are sitting in this room going, I know that. You're not telling me anything I don't know. But let me say this. There's a difference, brothers and sisters, between knowing that intellectually and filling it in your hearts. And some of us have gone beyond our feelings and we only we know it here, but it's no longer hitting us here. It's no longer hitting us here. We've gotten um, used to it. We've we've grown tired of it. And we're going to touch that in just a second. But look at Ephesians three with me. Look at Ephesians three in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter three. Every so often I got to throw in a verse to make you um, keep following along with me. And to, to make sure that you are following along with me. So Ephesians chapter 3, when you get there. Okay, when the rest of you get there. Or when you just want me to keep going. Okay, there we go. Beginning at verse 17 of Ephesians 3, Paul writes these words. And he came. 
Oh, I, sorry, I actually had to be in verse in chapter three and not chapter two. Okay, so so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How long is God's love? In Ephesians 1.4, Paul says that God set his love on us in eternity past. Meaning before anything in, in all of creation came to be, God set his love on us. God purposed to redeem us. As we said before, that means that forgiveness was in God's heart before sin was ever in man's heart. How high is God's love? David says in the Psalms that God's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. So think now with me. Think stars. Think galaxies. Think light years. And then try to measure God's love for his people. If it seems incomprehensible, it's because it's unimaginable. If we can't truly measure and know the galaxies... We will never truly measure and get to the bottom of his love for us that reaches to the heavens. In fact, it's high enough that it covers all of our sin. That's how high it is. How wide is God's love? It's wide enough that it controls all things and it shows us his love. When we first got Malachi um, from India, we would ask him, it was so cute, Malachi, how much do we love you? And he would always go, this much. And it was so cute, but, um, and we would keep pressing, and finally he would go, this much. And when we ask God, God, how much do you love us? His son says, this much. As he spread his hands wide on the cross for us. How deep is God's love? It goes deeper than we could ever imagine, reaching to the lowest hell to save us. No matter how deep our sin, his love is deeper still. There is a revealed love, and we can know it, which leads us to the last truth. So God has defined his love for us. God has revealed his love for us. And then lastly, God has proven his love for us or manifested is what John says in 1 John 4. God has manifested his love for us. To say that God is love does not mean that God overlooks sin. It's not what it means. In fact, Kyle said it earlier in his prayer. It means that God has made a way for sinners. That's what it means. Because he loves us, God has made a way for us. And that way is through his son. Think about John 3.16. It's a verse that we know. I pray that we know it. I pray our children know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. God so loved the world. And the word world there does not necessarily mean bigness. When we think of world, we think of the globe. So we think God so loved the globe. But the word world there doesn't mean bigness. It means badness. Or, or think of it this way. When we admire the love of God, we're not saying, God, you're so awesome that you love something so big. What we're saying is, God, you're so awesome that you love something so bad as a wicked world filled with wicked people. The love of God is so majestic because God, who is holy, has loved a world who is sinful. What strikes us is that God, who is righteous, 
Love the world who is unrighteous. That he who dwells in unapproachable light has stooped and entered into the realm of darkness. That he who is just has given himself to the unjust. That he who is altogether glorious and desirable has suffered endless shame for us. And yet his love keeps reaching. And it keeps reaching. And it keeps reaching. And it keeps reaching. Again, maybe you're here today and you would acknowledge that with your mind. God loves everybody. But is it touching your heart? Is it touching your heart and your life? Or maybe you're here this morning. And please hear this. Maybe you're here and the enemy has convinced you that you are unworthy of his love. And maybe that's where you are. But let me say this. Yes, you are unworthy. And we sit in a room of unworthy people. In a a world of unworthy people. But do not let your unworthiness blind you to what God has done for us in Christ. According to the cross of Christ, God really does love us even to the point of death. That God thought we were worth saving. He loves you, not just some future version of you. When you get it all together and you're able to come before God and say, God, I cleaned up my life. Here I am. Love me. No, God loves the the present messed up version of you and me. Amen to that. He loves the present messed up version of us. Let me just say this. I think of a past declaration that that was made in Romans 5. It's also an eternal truth that says this. God shows or proved his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss it. I've always heard that the value you place on something is shown by what you're willing to give up for it. How much you're actually willing to pay for it. If something is really worth a lot to you, how much are you willing to give up in order to have it? And apply that logic to the way that God pursued us, and it's staggering. God demonstrated the price that he was willing to pay for all of us to redeem us by giving himself for us. There could be no higher price that could have ever been paid. If you ever wonder, does God really love me? It's as objective as it can possibly get. So imagine this. Imagine yourself a slave in the slave market. And I know that might seem um, kind of weird in the day and age that we live in, but the Bible says we're either slaves to righteousness or unrighteousness. So imagine yourselves as slaves in the slave market and imagine the block there where you know people are going to be put upon it and a price is going to be given. So imagine the auction begins and the first person steps up and the crowd says, how much for that one? $200 sold. How much for, for that one? $300 sold. How much for her? sold. How much for him? Big and strong. $800 sold. How much for that one? Better years far behind them. $100 sold. And then your turn. And you hear how much for them. 
And there is a silence. And then in that moment, imagine God stepping forward and saying, I want them all. I want them all. And the auctioneer saying, well, what are you willing to pay? And God says, my son. I'm willing to pay and give my son. For I am not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And here's the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. God did not demand that we first demonstrate our allegiance to him before Christ would come. God didn't say, get your act together, and when you get your act together, I'm going to do something big for you. No, God says, you keep staying where you are and messing it up, and I'm still going to do something amazing and loving for you. It is beautiful. Think about this. What can us, rebellious sinners, offer God that would make him do what he did? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing we can offer him. Christ died for us because God loves the unlovable. Amen to that? God loves the unlovable. He decided to love us when he could have justly condemned us. God hates sin and yet he pursues sinners and calls them by name. God is so committed to us that he sent Jesus to die for us. God's love, think about it, is full of blood, is full of sweat, is full of tears, is full of groans. He suffered for us. And God's love demands that we respond to it. That we believe it, that we trust it, that we obey it, that we give thanks with a joyful heart for it, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that it is God who works in us. Let me just say this this morning. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Jesus didn't come to earth and die for you because you had anything. He came and laid down his life for you because you had nothing. Because you had nothing. Because I had nothing by which to offer him. His love changes everything. It changes everything. I want to end this morning with a quote and a story. The quote is by Don, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And it says this. Seeing the love of God at Christmas is one of the greatest wonders in the spiritual universe. When we see this love at work, we may wonder if God is really like that. But he is. Think about it. Many years later, he would give man the ability to form the iron in the ground. He had given him into nails. And to fashion the trees in the field, he had created into a cross. Then he stretched out his hands upon that tree and allowed us to nail him there. And in so doing, he took our sins upon himself. And he says this, this is our God and there is no one else like him. There's no one else like him. This is who he is and he loves us. One story took place in the mid-1800s when the late D.L. Moody was in England on one of his crusades. He met a man there named Henry Morehouse. Morehouse was greatly drawn to Moody and followed him around. The story goes that Henry Morehouse asked Moody if 
Um, he ever made it to Chicago where Moody preached, would Moody let him preach in his church? And so Moody agreed, thinking he'll never come to Chicago. So sure, you can preach there. But sometime later, Henry Morehouse arrived on Moody's doorstep, um, wanting to redeem the pledge. So a reluctant Moody agreed to let him preach, even though his colleagues were concerned. Moody said, he can't mess up things too bad, and I will go right after him, and whatever he messes up, I will straighten up. So that night, Morehouse stood and preached on John 3.16 with such passion and power that Moody invited him to speak again the next night. This went on for an entire week. And this young man preached the same message each night, John 3, 16. In fact, Moody was so moved that Henry Morehouse became known as the man who moved the man who moved millions. But on the last night, Henry Morehouse had the people there. He opened up to John 3, 16, and here's what he said. I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. Suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder. Suppose I could ascend that shining stairway until my feet stood on the sapphire pavements of the city of God. Suppose I could find Gabriel, the head angel, who stands in the presence of God. And suppose I could say, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is how much God loves the world. Brothers and sisters, I've been here today trying to tell you just how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son for you. That's how much he loves you. Do you know it this morning? Do you feel it this morning? How have you responded to it or how will you respond to it? Again, it's one of the most well-known truths, the love of God that we take so for granted. But when we understand how unworthy and undeserving we are and how loving he is, it changes everything. It changes everything. We're not working our way up to God. God sent his son down to us and did a work for us that we could never do. And it changes everything. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. And I'm not going to take for granted who might be here or what you might be going through, but here's what I can say this morning. If you're wondering in this moment how much God loves you, he loved you enough to send his son to die for your sins, to pay the payment that you could never pay on your own. That if if you will call upon the name of the Lord, if you believe and trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you will turn from believing and trusting in yourself, if you will turn and trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you will be saved. And I want to encourage anyone in here today that has never done that. May this day be the day of your salvation. May this day be the day that you call upon the name of the Lord. May this moment be the moment that you cry out to God from the depths of your heart. And you confess to God that you are a sinner. And you are not worthy of salvation. 
but that you believe that God did for you through Jesus what you could never do for yourselves. That God sent Jesus to live a perfect life that you couldn't live. That God sent Jesus to die a death for the sins of the world that you couldn't die. And God sent Jesus to conquer an enemy that you could never conquer. If you call upon the name of the Lord in this moment, you will be saved. Oh, that you would. But also, I believe that there are Christians across this room that you believe intellectually, you know intellectually that God loves you. There's no question about that, but for some reason there is a disconnect between filling it in your heart. And I want to pray for you right now. That God would move. I'm not talking about an emotional thing that just lasts for a few minutes. I'm talking about that God would move your heart to show you afresh and anew how much he loves you. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you now in this moment. And God, we pray desperately for any who do not know you. That today would be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they call on your name. They turn away from themselves. They turn away from their sin. And they turn to you, Jesus, and trust you as their Savior and Lord. And God, that you would forever in this moment change their life. That your spirit would come in to them. And affirm to them, God, what has happened in this moment. And God, I pray for brothers and sisters across this room who intellectually would say, God loves me. But for some reason, whether it be through sin or circumstances, they've stopped feeling it in their hearts and lives. God, today remind them how much you love them. That you sent your son for them. Not because of what you could do, or what they could do for you, but because of only because of what you could do for them. God, help us to understand your love today. Help us to celebrate your love today. Help us to rejoice in your love today. Finish this time. Finish this time. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And what we're going to do is a couple things are about to happen. We're about to celebrate the ordinance of communion together. I don't think there's any way that we could finish this time better than this. So in just a second, we're going to have our deacons come and they're going to kind of stand in places. And like if you're over here, they're going to dismiss you this way. If you're over here, they're going to dismiss you this way. Over here, this way. And uh, by row, and uh, you will come up and you will see the bread. We ask that you take the bread and just say it to yourself or even say it out loud. His body. And then take that and then go to the cup. His blood. Take that and then say these words for me. The gospel in four words, brothers and sisters. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. But before we do this, let me just say this, that what we're about to do is not for everybody. This service, opening the Word of God, is for everybody. But what we are about to, to partake in is not for everybody. It's only for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who have been baptized or who are pursuing baptism. So I want to ask us in this moment, the Bible says, do not participate this 
in an unworthy manner. Don't do it. The Bible says people have done it and died. Don't do it. So read 1 Corinthians 11. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Participate with, not in an unworthy manner, but understand who is worthy. So I'm going to give us just a few minutes, right where you are, just to bow your head before God. And pour out your heart to Him in ways that only you can and only He knows. And only He needs to know. And then we're going to finish this time together. our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all our sins. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But while we were yet in our sin, Christ died for moment we're going to ask ushers to get in their place and as they do so we're going to have the song on the screen whenever you get back to your place we ask you just to remain standing and just to sing this song top of your voice just declaring what God has done for us